welcome to another edition of the Gary Anderson F1 Show. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me, as always, is the star of the show, former F1 Technical Director Gary Anderson. We've got a mixed bag of listener questions today, some based on what happened at Imola, and some a little more general, including one on a favourite topic of this podcast, the Jordan 191. But first, Gary, wasn't it just great to see Grand Prix racing back where it belongs at Imola? Yeah, it was great to see it back there. You know, as I say, everybody keeps saying it's an old school track, but you can feel just wandering out around there, you can just feel the emotion of, of motor racing in the past. Uh, it's a bit like Monza, as I say, you look at the banking at Monza and you just you can just see racing cars coming around that banking and it just it just means that it's just so different. And Imola's a bit like that, to be honest. It's uh, you know, tree-lined, gravel-lined. It's not this... I think somebody related to it as a, a car park um, over the weekend. Other other races with the tarmac runoff areas. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a nice balance somewhere between the two, I believe. But um, yeah, Imola's just got that bit of character that the rest don't have. With uh, basically with you know the houses and the gardens at the side. You know, there'll be people out there cutting the lawn, probably having to look over the fence to see the racing cars go around. So yeah, it's real life in Italy. Yeah, Imola, an amazing place to be. I was very fortunate to be there. There's just so much history. It's not some circuit out in the middle of nowhere. And just a wonderful setting with that proper parkland feel and those houses within the track. There's even an ex-Grand Prix driver living in one, apparently. You know, the, the big thing is you don't get the people that are living there complaining about the noise, you know, that we get so often at other tracks. They've got to be built in the middle of nowhere because people, you know, complain about the noise. And, and people there, they're just so emotional. They, they love the noise. They, you know, oh, what's that? I'll go and have a look. So, yeah, it's a whole different world. Well, without further ado, let's get on with the questions. Thanks very much to everyone who sent their questions in. Sorry we can't get to all of them, but if you do, throw your questions at Gary Anderson on Twitter. He's on at GaryAndersonF1. We'll try and get through as many as we can in future podcasts. So the first question comes from Felofer Jetski. Not a, a name I'm familiar with, but it's certainly descriptive. Who asks, what do you think about releasing lapped cars while marshals are still on the track? Well, you know, that's never a good situation, is it? And, and it really shouldn't happen. There has to be some sort of overall control to say, you know, it's safe, all the marshals are now at the marshals post, the track's clear, so get on with it. But obviously there's something missing there, and the FIA need to look very closely at it, because it's it's nobody else's mistake but the FIA. They're the ones that authorise the marshals to go onto the track. They're the ones that authorise the, the safety car to, to let the lap cars through you know i've got a different opinion on the lap cars thing i don't like it much because it just wastes a lot of time for for the real race to take place um so from my point of view you know it shouldn't be happening the, the lap cars should go to the back of the top 10 in my book um it, it's a price you pay you know unfortunately it's a price you pay for for not being fast enough and all that all they're doing really is trying to save face because the last thing that F Formula One want is for everybody to be lapped by you know the top the top two or top three. So this gives an opportunity for the lap cars not to be to be to unlap themselves. Um, so it's a difficult situation, uh, but the safety issue is, is huge, and we've all seen it happening before where cars have crashed. George Russell's an example. You know, he he was fully in control a nanosecond before he lost control. So it's not as though it's, you know, he was he was doing something wrong. He just made a slight error and off the car went. That could happen to anybody passing marshals if they're on the track. So you need to be very, very careful about that. We all remember Jules Bianchi's accident, hitting, hitting the digger for the same sort of reasons in a way. Um, but it's it's one of those sort of situations. If, obviously it's happened. They need to learn by it and make sure it never, ever happens again. 
Next up, a question from Stuart Henry. He asks, how will Pirelli and Red Bull determine the course of Verstappen's retirement? Obviously, we know he had a, a tyre go, but how do they tell what went wrong? Well, on, on the car, there should be two um, very uh, decent sets of data. data. There should be the tyre pressures and there should be uh, tyre temperature. Uh, how fast a logging rate that Red Bull do that in during the race, I don't know, because sometimes... You just the logging rate, basically, so you get the whole race package. But as far as tire pressures are concerned, you probably want to log it quite highly. So you'll you sh- you'll be looking at that first of all to see if the tire started to go down a little bit earlier, or if the tire started to overheat a little bit earlier, or be different from the lap before. Let's say. I suppose if you watch the onboard camera, which I had a look at last night, you can see the inner shoulder of the tire is the first part to go. Um, it looks like it's a one patch thing, it's one area because it's rotating and you can see it coming into view now and again. Um, if I was just looking at that, I would say it was a delamination that, that caused the, the problem. Uh, is that Was that delamination caused by overhe- overheating? Was it caused by um, l- low tire pressure? Was it caused by an instant puncture? I don't think it was an instant puncture because it was there for quite a few revolutions, uh, revolutions of the tire. So it wasn't like it was a puncture that just suddenly went from fully fully inflated to, to deflated, um, these rear tires are running at about you know, 20, 22 PSI. So there's a big volume of tire of air in there. Um, so uh, they will look at the parts, to be honest, but I think that all they've got left there, if you saw the tire after the incident, all you've got left there really is that data to, to assess it and what you can see from TV. Uh, Max didn't know about it. He thought something broke, which is the same as a tire instant deflation. Um, as I say, if you get a if you get a delamination or a structural failure on the inner shoulder of the tire, which is the critical shoulder, to be honest, um, then you know it will go down instantly. So I'm not sure they'll come back with an answer to that problem. I don't see how they will, unless they actually physically see that the tire had started to deflate, um, or that it deflated before he lost control of the car. You know, all that data can be connected up to his brake pedal, the steering angle, everything. So you'll know instantly if the deflation happened just that little bit earlier than he reacted to it um so it will be down to the data i think the tire itself is way way past the analyzing another red bull question coming from bill pearson he says a lot of talk about the red bull centers on braking stability perhaps they do need less rear wing for the top speed but equally it sounds like the car needs it to go fast as always aero efficiency is always a winner but perhaps a little anti-lift would help well, there's a balance between downforce and and uh, lap time, I suppose you might call it, or straight line speed, downforce and lap time. The Red Bull was quick in the center, in the middle section of the, of the lap, um, and it was it was quick in the last section of the lap, but the first section of the lap it was slow in the straights. So I think I tweeted during the during the race that maybe a a little bit less wing next time might be a good idea for them. Um, but it is a balancing act, and obviously you know they're, they're biased. They've always biased it towards downforce their cars. Um, way through even through the Vettel era you know they were they were never a quick car in the straight they always carried corner speed and it was you know it was a good car and this year I think with the fact that the, the rear of the car is nervous on corner entry they would tend to balance it towards a higher downforce level to st- stabilize that that corner entry because if you if you take a downforce off you gain a fraction on the straight but it's how much you lose on the corner on the twisty bit and maybe they lose more than twisty bit than others would do 
So yeah, you know, you you talk about anti-lift. I'm pretty sure they've been through all that stuff. I mean, most of these cars were on some some style of anti-lift, uh, anti-dive on the front of the suspension geometry to stop the front of the car diving so much, anti-lift on the rear to stop it rising so much. The suspensions are pretty trick these days, so they do try to sort of drag the rear right height of the car down um, whenever you are under braking. It's it's a very difficult thing to do because you know the 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 weight transfer on the car is one thing. These cars, let's say they're braking at 5 to 6 G. Um, when you're actually braking, you know, braking hard like that, you're probably transferring 250 kilograms, 300 kilograms off the rear axle onto the front axle. So suddenly you've got a lot less rear load on the rear tires. Um, and then your aerodynamic platform, if that's doing the same thing, then it multiplies up. But what you try to do with the aerodynamic platform is to try to make it go the opposite direction if possible. So you reduce that 250 or 300 um, kilograms of downforce. And it's a very, very tough thing to do because you cannot stop, you cannot do away with the weight transfer. It's, it it's just happens. It's just physics. So at the end of the day, I think it's their aero platform to create the downforce they're, they're creating means that the rear of the car loses more aerodynamically than some others. And, um, Although their total's higher, they lose more under the braking area, and that makes the rear of the car nervous. So, very difficult to fix it with anti-dive or um, or anti-lift. If you do too much of that, anti-dive or anti-lift, you can actually take away the the driver's feeling of the car. The car just doesn't sort of move. It's, it's a bit like driving a breeze block. You know, it just doesn't give any feedback. So, um, you need to be very careful trying to achieve it that way. You probably should achieve it with the error map and maybe running the high rate solution they do. Um, doesn't allow them to do that. Well, big talking point at the weekend was the future of Toto Wolff, who is going to move into a slightly different role next year, most likely from his current team principal role. So Danny Herbert asks, do you think promoting James Allison to Mercedes team principal would be a good idea? Or is his skill set too much on the technical side? Well, I think we had a lot of chat about this whenever uh, Benotti was um, promoted to team principal and um, technical director or technical manager, whatever he is. Um, and at the point in time, I said, look, you know, leave the guys that are good at their job alone in the job they do. And promoting Benotti to that position was not the right thing for him. And I'd say the same with James Allison. You know, James, Mercedes work a bit different from everybody else. I think there's quite a lot of motivation through the company. There is huge levels of responsibility, I suppose you might call it, through the company. There are a lot of very good people there. You know, John Owen... Uh, very very good um, guy. Uh, he's their sort of chief designer as such, but they've got a lot of layers of very 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 good people. So it's not one person. Um, so it depends on, on within the com- within their own company what James Allison's job is at the moment. I would think James has become more of a you know a technical manager as opposed to a technical director, because with those layers of of other good people, you have to have a lot of good solid management in it. And you have to set people objectives to achieve stuff. Or you have to be responsive to people's potential uh, of achieving things. Um, I think one thing that, that probably Toto Wolf's very good at is staying out of it and just keeping the politics away from everybody. Giving them the motivation that they can get on with their job, he'll get on with his job. So you need somebody that will be capable of doing that. Um, and it's a very fine line between destroying the rest of the company and um, bringing in somebody from outside that'll want to do it in a different way. The best thing for Mercedes is probably to promote somebody, 
but that could also be the worst thing for Mercedes to do. So very difficult to, uh, to actually know what's the right solution. Al Packer next with a question about Imola. He says, now we've had the chance to see it, have the cars now evolved too far for the classic tracks? Or if these classic tracks were a permanent part of the schedule, how would that influence the car's design? Um, I don't think they developed too far. We saw, you know, a race in Imola, uh, racing cars around around the circle. Um, very difficult to overtake. That's, you know, that's within the car itself, to be honest, and, and the, the way the, the weekend is run. Um, the cars have evolved to very, very high levels of aerodynamic um, performance. And when you get behind another car, you just, you know, you lose a huge percentage of that. Now, that's being addressed, or we hope that's being addressed for 2022. But I don't think, you know, the regulations for the cars will ever address that situation. When you've got something that is traveling through the airflow, um, it will be optimized for clean air. And when you put something in front of it, that clean air flow will disappear. It's the same. It doesn't matter what airplane you fly on, be it, you know, as it was a Concorde or a Jumbo Jet or a Piper Cherokee or wherever they are. You know, you get behind something else. They will all bounce around in the sky um, because of the turbulence. So Formula One suffers from the same thing. And the cars are developing so much downforce that will always hurt them. Now then DRS was put in to try to help them. And from my point of view, happily in, in, in Imola, it didn't really work. It wasn't, it wasn't really long enough. And being on that one straight, there wasn't really enough of an advantage. It, 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 caused, it, it brought racing closer together, but never really pulled off those you know, signal maneuver um, things that we often see, those overtakes that we often see where the guy just comes up behind, pulls out and passes. We don't want to see that in Formula One. But I think, I think the cars will, will suit any track. I think the, the old school tracks, the main thing about them is the fact that it's, it's not just concrete runoff areas, it's gravel. You pay a price for a mistake. You shouldn't have to have those track limit limitations. You know, I don't know, the cars are two metres wide now. If from that white line, two metres away, there was a strip of gravel, you know, again, two metres wide. It would police itself. You know, you wouldn't put the car in the gravel. You can see what happens. You you have to lift the throttle. So um, at the end of the day, we have all these track limit stuff going on. But you know, any track is good for racing on as long as it's wide enough. Which Emil is just about wide enough. But I thought it was a very good race, and I'm very happy to see them go back there. I don't think it will influence the design of cars because the design of cars needs to be influenced to make overtaking happen anyway. And that's for every track, not just Emila. Well, AlphaTauri's performance was one of the big stories of the Imola weekend. Ben Sherwin asks, AlphaTauri's package seems really impressive, despite there not being a lot of fanfare about updates, unlike for Rating Point, McLaren and Renault. Is this more about optimising a car, or have they really been improving it? That's one of those situations. I think, you know, they themselves say they've got small developments going on all the time. But it's sort of better to, to try to get the best out of the car you've got make sure you can do that before you start putting updates on it because every time you do that every time you change the car's characteristics let's say you end up with a with a, a sort of different car you have to learn it all again so you can keep on putting in the wind tunnel which classifies itself as you know tenth of a second two tenths of a second three tenths of a second um you can put those bits on the car but then you have to rediscover it because it always you know the big thing we talk about here is the aero map and that's really how the car responds to changing ride height. As you can see on the track, the car's always changing ride height, no matter what it is, even just going down the straight, but through corners, it's rolling, you know, under brake and everything. It's always changing ride height. And that's what we call the aero map, how that transitions from one 
state to another. Um, because, you know, very few, very little data is gathered transiently as the cars are moving. It's all about, you know, the, the data you gathers at the end of that movement. And you might pick a few points on the way, and then you'll try and decipher what's happening. But it's the rate of change within the car itself on the track that really affects it. So if you keep putting on too big a bets, you end up losing yourself every weekend. And I think Toro Rosso, Toro Rosso? No, they're not there anymore. Alfa Tori, um, I think the one thing they've benefited from is just more or less dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making sure they never lost their awareness of how the car wants to respond. Um, and also little things, you know, like Albon, Albon getting a hammer in, um, you know, at Red Bull. Uh, has it's, it's given Gasly something to drive for. You know, that's all sort of gone now. He's, he's going to be an Alfa Tori driver for next year. But on the way there, he had to and still has to really sort of up his game to make sure that, you know, they have to look across the, the garage just to see him and say, he's not doing a bad job, is he? So um, he, he himself has probably picked his game up a little bit. And I think you can see that because on normal set of circumstances, he definitely has, uh, you know, a good hand over, uh, over Kvyat. Kvyat got fourth at the weekend through a very strong drive at the end of the race. But uh, in reality, Gasly has got, has got him handled. Um, so together, I think they're working in the right direction. You know, just keeping their head under the, wa- under the water, making sure they understand the car, and getting the best out of every weekend. And that's so important. Another star of the Emily race was Sergio Perez, who should have been on the podium, but for that late pit stop under the safety car. John Ferrer's question is, what does the sidelining of the likes of Perez say about the state of F1 at present? Fifth in the championship at the moment comes with huge backing and has done a good job in whatever seat he has. Surely better value than Nicholas Latifi. I don't know. I don't know. You can individually pick a driver out. That's you know, we look at Latifi as a pay driver, I suppose, and and that could be rightly so. Um, his father does come with a lot of money, a lot of sponsorship. Um, you know, Williams needed sponsorship. They've got sponsorship from a company, and that company wants that driver to be in the car. It's very similar to Perez. You know, Perez has got a lot of sponsorship from Mexico, and he can come with his experience and his talent and bring some money. I don't think it would be the same level as, as Latifi's money, if we take him as the example, but it would be money for sure. I'm very sad to see Sergio Perez possibly not get a drive next year, but his drive that he needs for next year needs to be on the way up and not on the way down. So I think he's better to hang out there and see if he can get a Red Bull drive for any reason, um, which is you know, fairly unlikely, but at least it's a move in the right direction. If he does do a move to, to Williams and bring his money there, that would be the nail in the coffin, I think, for him. I don't think we can expect Williams to be challenging for um, world championships or race wins or even podiums next year. He might get himself up a few steps on the ladder, but I don't think they'll be challenging for podiums. So at the end of the day, that's the direction Perez's career needs to go in. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's going to be more or less finished, to be honest. So hang out there. If you can get the Red Bull drive good job if you don't get the Red Bull drive best to go off and spend some of the money you've made and another driver related question from Simon Ems this relates to the fact Lewis Hamilton still hasn't inked his deal for 2021 the question is unlikely I know but if Lewis Hamilton does fail to sign a contract for next year who will be parachuted in there he says would they look to buy Ricardo out of his McLaren contract he mentions Perez and Hulkenberg and says surely there must be a contingency plan in place um, I'm sure there is a contingency plan in place. Um, the, the thing we've got to sort of look at carefully is 
would Bottas be a good enough team leader to, to take on the challenge? Um, from what the over picture I see is really, he's a very good driver, obviously very talented. How much of that comes from the, the fight of catching, of trying to be on top of Lewis Hamilton is difficult to know. If Lewis Hamilton was to drop out of the equation, would Bottas improve or would Bottas not improve is the, is the best way to put it, I suppose. I got a funny feeling he fights very, very hard to keep up with Lewis, to be honest. Um, so, you know, he he could very quickly lose a tenth of a second or two tenths of a second just from the fact of Hamilton not being there. So do the big question is, does Mercedes need somebody to take over from Lewis Hamilton or do they need somebody to back up um, Bottas? I would say right at this point in time, if I was in their position and Hamilton decided to hang up his boots as, you know, Rosberg did a few years ago, I would have been very carefully looking at George Russell. I know George made a bit of a mistake at the weekend. It's a schoolboy error, really. You know, to be honest, just one of those things, as I said earlier in this, you know, a nanosecond before that mistake happened, he was fully in control, doing the best job he could. And then suddenly, and it's too late. You cannot recover from it. So he shouldn't have made that mistake. he learned a lot from it, but he shouldn't let it wear him down either. He needs to get on with it. We know he's quick. Um, he shows he's quick in a car that's not really as good as it should be. And every time he gets in the Mercedes, he does a good job. So I would be putting him in there with a little bit of a cross finger to say he would he would potentially take over from Lewis after getting his feet under the table for six months or something, as opposed to becoming Bottas's um, backup driver. I don't think I don't think that you could bring in somebody else, Perez or Hulkenberg. Um, and, and actually feel that you were doing the, the Mercedes brand the right sort of um, the right sort of benefit, I suppose you might call it. You need to bring on some of your younger drivers, and I think George is good enough for that. Moving into the slightly broader question section, Gregory Pippas asks, how do teams set the geometry and wheel alignments of an F1 car? They clearly don't have one of those giant four-wheel laser alignment rigs in the garage, and I also assume they don't use a piece of string and a tape measure like I do on a track day. Well, you know, the odd Formula 1 team have been known to use four oil cans and a bit of string. No problem whatsoever. It's, uh, it doesn't tell lies, you know. It's one of those sort of situations. Um, but... Most of them will have, as you can see on TV quite often, you know, set-up wheels, which are machined wheels that are a specific height to the ground. Um, so you can do the cambers and all that stuff on them. Um, and they'll have laser beams from front wheel to rear wheel to, to do the alignment, front of the car to the rear of the car, and a, and a toe out and toe in. So it's not far away from a piece of string, but it just happens to be a laser line. Uh, there's no, you know, There's nothing trick about trying to line everything up. Um, it, it just has to be done as as efficiently as possible, as consistently as possible, and within the environment that you're working in. And say that you can't beat a good a good laser line with with proper machine set up wheels front and rear, and you know you, you go away from there having confidence that the car is true and set up. We do hear quite often, you know, the steering wheel's a bit to the left, the steering wheel's a bit to the right. That's that's just not being set up correctly. It's just it's just the fact that it's you know the front wheels and rear wheels aren't quite in line with each other. So you know it's not much different from your track days. I'm sure you've gone out um, a few times and found the uh, the steering wheel pulling a bit to one side or the other side. So yeah, it, it happens. You know mistakes are made, but basically it's the same as what you do on your track days. I'm surprised it's the wheel alignment question that got the dog interested in the background. <laughs> yeah, dogs out in the garden. Yes, 
I'm not quite sure. She's going, going mad today. The, the wind's blowing. She loves leaves. So the leaves are blowing around the garden and uh, she has to catch them all. <laughs> That's uh, important activity being done. Ivan Nikolov asks, how much of a role does driving style play in choosing teammates, like matching one type of driver to the car to the lead driver? Um, it would, you know, it plays a big part if you can actually identify it. It's very, very difficult to identify it until push comes to shove. And normally that, that happens whenever you, you get the driver in the car. You know, we'll, we'll take an example, I suppose, which this question is related to, is to Max Verstappen and Pierre Gasly or, or um, uh, Albon. It's, it's one of those things, you know, Max has got a bigger window, I suppose, of acceptance of how the car should be. Uh, and, he, and he works within that. And so many other drivers come in with preconceived ideas of how the car should work uh, and how they need the comfort of the level of the car. You know, Jensen Button was a, a typical different driver. He he always drove in sort of an F3 way where he took, he kept the corner speed up, didn't break late, didn't, you know, turn in, didn't break in a straight line type thing and then turn at the corner and then nail the throttle. He would try to turn in gently and keep the corner speed. All of it happens in the same way, except for, you know, for Jensen, for example, he needed a, a better balanced car for a bigger radius of the corner. Um, so balance was his thing. I don't think he really minded oversteer or understeer. David Coulthard never liked oversteer. You know, he, he, he hit at fast corners when the car would you know, be just leaning on the rear tyre. Um, so there is a difference in driving styles. I think you can go back to whenever Sebastian Vettel was at Red Bull. Um, when they had their, as we called it, blown diffuser, or the exhaust pipes working on the back end of the car, you know, he was a rocket ship, much quicker than Mark Webber. But whenever, I think... 2013 I think it was when they brought their car out and there was a change of regulations on that um, their blown diffuser solution um, wasn't really working very well and Mark was much quicker than, than Vettel initially for the first three or four races but then you know the design team got on top of it got the exhaust system working properly and then so, suddenly Sebastian Vettel was, was back to the old school so everybody needs a car that sort of suits themselves a little bit but it's the guys, you know, and I take Max Verstappen in there um, and Michael Schumacher, I think who had the biggest working window of acceptance for how the car was that will do a good job. I mean, obviously Lewis Hamilton's part of that as well, but he has, with that team, such a good package. You know, it's, it is such an all-round package, that Mercedes car, from the power unit right through to the aerodynamic platform. It's such an all-round package that... It's exceptional how they can get the best out of it every weekend, 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 week out. So um, you do, you can't choose your your, your um, second driver until you get him, and then you make your mind up what uh, what direction you're going to go in. Question about uh, car design now. Dave England says, "What pathway do you see future F1 chief designers taking when everything single seater based is spec racing now? Is Le Mans hypercar, uh, which is going to be used in World Endurance Championship next year, where we should be looking?" Uh, it's a very difficult question. You know, it depends on on how the rule makers see the world outside and who they got to sort of satisfy for for where races are going and what they're doing with the environment. You know, we're all we're all after, um, I suppose, a better environment. So there has to be a direction from it. But it's um, it's not down to chief designers. Designers, technical directors of the teams, just just designed to the regulations. So it's the regulation makers that need to look at that area and decide what they believe is the best way for the world ahead of them. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't see any, any designer, whether, whether it's designed a washing machine or a toaster or a, 
you know, a hairdryer will design to a set of requirements, um, and those that set of requirements need to be set by the controlling body. So it's down to them, really, what they see as being a big deal. The, the LMP hypercar, it's new, it's coming along. Um, be interesting to see how it sort of evolves, to be honest. But Formula One's a different sort of beast, I suppose. It, it should be focused on racing. Um, I think it needs to be focused on racing with a percentage view to the to the, um, the climate control. Let all some of the others, you know, look into and set new grounds. But let make sure Formula One stays as a racing formula. That it's down to the, you know, the hero in the in the cockpit that's uh, that's doing the job as opposed to something else. So difficult difficult decision for the rule makers to to come up with the solutions because they'll always get beaten down by somebody. But as far as designers are concerned, all they'll do is build the best car they can to a set of regulations. Ian Chesney asks, who is or where is the next Adrian Newey? Um, well, you know, we're talking about a Formula One um, technical director, you know, a guy that's done fantastic things, as as has, you know, John Barnard, Patrick Head, Gordon Murray, you know, lots and lots of people have done fantastic things. Colin Chapman, through their time in, in Formula One or in motorsport, I suppose you might call it. Um, and they're innovators, I suppose you might call it. The innovation has gone in Formula One. It's about optimization now. Um, the regulations have got so close that there's no there's no room for somebody to step off the beaten track. Um, it, it sort of started happening a long time ago, really, whenever we, we got into these one-make formulas. There wasn't any room to, to do something, you know. I've had a fairly simple career, but my career was but one day deciding to build a Formula 3 car and, and starting to draw it, my brother-in-law making it, and we made a Formula 3 car. It won races, it won a couple of championships, you know, but you learned a lot from it. And then, you know, we're doing the Formula 3000, um, we went with the new Reynard Formula 3000 car. First thing we did was discover a couple of problems in it. The front anti roll bar system just didn't work. Um, rear suspension was a bit strange and, and we made bits and put it on you can't do that nowadays with one make formulas there's no learning curve for engineers um, to try to get themselves involved with the understanding of a car's dynamics um, you just have to do the best job you can within a one make formula you can change you know, a few sets of springs or, or roll bars or whatever but that's it, you can't get innovative so innovation's gone from Formula 1 Innovation is not bred in the smaller formulas. It's all down to management now and huge teams. So, you know, the, the technical director's job has now become a technical manager's job. He just pulls all the bits of the jigsaw together and hopefully whenever they build it, it's got the picture that you wanted to see. So I think the, it's more of a where do we get the next Ross Braun from because Ross was very good at that, as are quite a few other people, but Ross was very, very good at that. Adrian was very, very good at innovating um but there's a balance between the two somewhere but there is no formulas breeding those people anymore and that's that's really quite sad well now we've got the long-awaited jordan 191 question morticia's keeper asks was your thinking behind the 191 monoshock to give a stable aero platform i guess we should start off by defining monoshock before you get into the reasons for it well the monoshock is basically a, a single shock absorber system on the front of the car or rear of the car, but on the front of the car in this case. Um, and it basically, um, yeah, there's one of them instead of two of them. There's one spring instead of two springs. Lots and lots of reasons for it. 
Um, it, it was about the aero platform, yes, to a certain extent. Um, I just mentioned there about the Reynard and the, the Reynard Formula 3000 car I ran in 1988 and 1989. Um, and that was just before I got involved in in um, the Formula 1 design. And basically the anti-roll bar system, it had two shocks and springs and anti-roll bar system. And basically the anti-roll bar system didn't work very well. And changing the geometry of it and making it work well was a massive change to the car. But you've still got all this linkage stuff. Everything that sort of rotates and does stuff has clearances in it. So at the end of the day, I wanted to do away with all that as much as possible because we're running hugely stiff anti-roll bars on the car um, to control the roll of the car, the front of the car. Um, but you still had some linkage um, movements because of all the, the gaps, you know, the joints basically, you know, between now all the things that rotated or moved, you had some tolerances in there. And that allowed a little, a little bit of movement. It doesn't sound like much, but it is much up to quite a lot. So by going to the monoshock, you eliminated all that completely. Um, you also wanted to get the best traction of the car because uh, one of the things I always said with my cars was it didn't matter what engine you had in the back of it unless you can get the throttle open. It doesn't matter how much power it's got. So getting the traction and suffering a little bit of understeer was a compromise that we made. And the monoshock allowed us to reduce all that movement potential on the front um, keep a better aero platform, get better traction with a little bit of understeer. So it was a, in my book, it was a, a more all-round system. It also meant we could go to pre-qualifying and we didn't have as many things that you could change because the first thing is the driver will come in and complain about understeer when the track's dirty and you'll soften the front of the car down a bit and try and get rid of some of the understeer. And all you'll do is whenever the track gets better, you'll have horrible traction and you won't be able to find yourself again. You just sort of dig yourself into a hole that you have to get back out of again. Um, at least with the monoshock, that was one end of the car, you could say, it's fine, leave it alone, there's nothing we can change on it anyway, and, uh, and away you go. Question next from Dean Merrigan, who says, given the obvious advantage of smaller and lighter drivers and the advantages of tighter packaging, where do you see the current design limit for driver entry into F1 teams in terms of their height and their weight? Well, Dean, as, as opposed to the past, there is a limitation on the internal size of the of the cockpit now so bigger drivers are actually not as badly disadvantaged as they were back in the i don't know prost senate era i suppose you might call it even the beginning of the 90s whenever i was designing cars there was no limitation in there so you know for bertram gascio basically the car was genuinely too small um it was even too small for me but never mind that um so yeah, small drivers were an advantage um and again, the same with weight. weight. Weight will always be an advantage, but now there is a little bit of a, a ballast in there for the driver. There is a, a driver weight and a car weight now. Um, so it's all working in the right direction to not be able to hand the, the reins over to small, light people. I think, uh, you know, you can be probably 1.7 metres, 1.75 tall. Um, I think that's right, yeah. Um, and still, you know, not be disadvantaged. And get any taller than that, and you're probably looking a little bit near the mark. Um, and again, weight-wise, you can get yourself up to about you know seventy to seventy-five kilograms, and not pay a big price. So it's headed in the right direction to try to equalise that. I think a little bit more could be done, and it wouldn't be wrong. I think twenty twenty-two was a good chance to do this. I'm not sure whether anything's been done on it yet, but it would have been a good time to have added another you know five centimeters into the length just to make sure that you weren't a problem. 
um, there still wasn't a problem there. Um, and another you know, five kilograms onto the weight. So it has been addressed. It is a lot better now than it was, but it still could be a little bit better. And the final question comes from Nikki Gray, who says, the technical progression of tyres has always been a mystery to me. How much have tyres improved since the 1970s? That's a good question for you, Gary, because obviously we were still in the, the cross-ply era when you started in F1. Yeah, I mean, cross-ply tyres were, were good. Um, they're still round and black. Um, some of them now have got red and yellow and white stripes on the side of them, but they're still round and black. Um, but, you know, massively different as far as construction is concerned and as far as materials are in them is concerned. But again, at the end of the day, you know, in the in the 70s, we had tyre blistering. Um, we still got tyre blistering. You had tyre graining. You still got tyre graining. Nothing has really changed except for the technology, more of consistency in putting them together, to be honest. Um, has the grip level changed for the rubber? Yes, of same, same deal. You know, rubber technology has moved on quite a lot. But as you say, going back to the, the, the uh, old days when we had cross-ply tyres, um, and into the era, like, like I was saying again with the Form 3000 in the late 80s with the cross-ply tyres and, and the early 90s with the Formula 1 car with the Goodyear cross-ply tyres, you know, they were very good for, for what we called, you know, cars that were producing downforce from underneath them. We were able to set the Reynard up um, in the pits with something like a 8mm front ride height, you know, tiny, tiny front ride height. And when the air loads come on the car, obviously that would push it down to near the ground. But the tyre itself, because it was a cross-plate tyre, would expand. So the right height would stay very constant. You know, it never really got any lower or any higher. Just the faster you went, the higher it became the air load, overcome that and pushed it back down to the ground again. So that's one of the things with radial tyres now. You know, that doesn't happen. The, the tyre doesn't, well, not change to the same percentage by any means, but it still changes, but not dramatically. So, you know, you have to accommodate all that movement so is that good or is that bad it's it's just one of those things you know technology of the tire and the car has gone together so the stiffness of the construction of the tire and the you know all of that stuff has, has now got more united as opposed to a company building tire you know in in america and shipping it to europe to race um to put on any car now it's more refined the technology of the car and the, and the tire match each other a lot better. So it has moved on, but it's it's still round and black. <laughs> you make it sound so simple, <laughs> the dark arts of tires. But yeah. Well, that's all we've uh, got time for on this episode. Thanks to everyone for your questions. Sorry for those who we didn't get to, but you can always fling some questions at Gary on Twitter. He's on at Gary Anderson. F1. Do check out the race website, therace.com, and don't forget the hyphen. Loads of stuff from Gary on there. His reflections on some of the the things from uh, Imola that, that caught his eye, and a few things he wasn't that impressed with as well. As always, check out also some of our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories that Gary sometimes crops up on. And have a look at our YouTube channel as well. Just search for the race. We'll be back next week with more from Gary. <laughs>